The last page has been turned on my most recent read and I'm on the hot chocolate because while it's sunny, it is really chilly and I need something that gives me a cozy feeling as winter is really not my season despite being a winter baby. I'm recording this in my new office come studio and it's looking amazing. With sparkling glitter in the paint, there is a gorgeous reflective glow when I switch the lights on and a new bookcase has given me even more space to put books because I do love the feeling of turning pages. Though, to be fair, my Kindle is incredibly convenient for reading books on the go, as anybody who's a reader will tell you. Right now, I'm ready to tell you all about the book I've just finished. So here I am, no spoilers, possibly, opinion-filled and ready to roll. All of which means it's time for the latest episode of Being Bookish. I'm your host, Ray, self-confessed bookworm, introvert, hermit, long-term depression sufferer and ex-coffee addict. That is never going to grow old. Join me on my journey through my ever-growing to-be-read pile and enjoy the latest of my 100% spoiler-free book reviews. Though that claim may sort of get destroyed for this episode only. We're now in week three of Booktober and I am definitely turning up the gothic this week with a book that came out 43 years ago when I was five and was controversial as hell even then. So join me as I take a reluctant trip to Foxworth Hall, Virginia and talk about the cult hit Flowers in the Attic by Virginia Andrews or VC Andrews as she is known in the US. This is a book that had a huge impact, probably not completely positive on my formative years, given I devoured the first four books in the Delanganga, that's a mouthful that I'm going to grow tired of saying frequently, series in 1985 and 86. And I was over the moon when I heard that a fifth book, Garden of Shadows, the story of Olivia, the evil grandmother, was being released because a part of me needed to know what drove this woman to be so cruel. Anyway, that was when I discovered that Virginia Andrews had passed away. Her death wasn't something that was covered in the newspapers we read, and this was in the time before Twitter was spreading gossip like a gardener spreads manure. For me, that, mean, that meant no more books, and I have stuck to that. I reread the originals over and over, but never picked up another that was ghostwritten. Because to me, that was a big no-no. And to a point, it still is. So light a few candles or perhaps just switch on that reading lamp. Because a bit of atmosphere, especially with a spooky book, is always a wonderful accompaniment to a reading session. Get yourself a fresh cup of something hot or a glass of something chilled, depending entirely on when you're listening, of course. And let's get started. At the top of the stairs, there are four secrets hidden, blonde, beautiful, innocent, and struggling to stay alive. They were a perfect family, golden and carefree, until a heartbreaking tragedy shattered their happiness. Now, for the sake of an inheritance that will ensure their future, the children must be hidden 
away out of sight, as if they never existed, kept on the top floor of their grandmother's vast mansion. Their loving mother assures them that it will be just for a little while. But as brutal days swell into agonizing months and years, Kathy, Chris, and twins Corey and Carrie realize their survival is at the mercy of their cruel and superstitious grandmother, and this cramped and helpless world may be the only one they ever know. The whole of this book is told through the diary of Kathy Delanganga, but it is never made clear in this book or any of the sequels when she is actually looking at these diaries. Did she write them as an adult, looking back at the torture she and her siblings were put through as a child? Or was she writing them as she experienced the events? An answer to this question would definitely change the tone of the story, injecting far more into the experiences that the family go through. In their home in Pennsylvania, Corrine and Christopher Delanganger and their four children live a beautiful life. But in the space of one night, everything changes and the family is left without the only supporting rudder. Christopher has been tragically killed in an accident and Corrine needs to do what she can to survive. What the children don't realise is that their mother has been hiding a horrible secret their entire lives. And now they are going to be taken to live in the body of the beast where this horrible secret is going to turn their beautiful lives into a nightmare. Arriving at Foxworth Hall in the dead of night, Chris, Kathy and the twins, Corey and Carrie, are smuggled into the house and taken to the attic rooms where their suitcases are left, rules are given and they are locked away like the dark secret they soon realise they always were. With a promise from their loving mother that this will be but a short imprisonment, that soon they will be able to enjoy the wealth their mother promised will be theirs when their elderly and sickly grandfather passes away. They have no idea what is going to happen. Of course, if you've read the book, you'll know that this is a lie to mollify her innocent children. Corrine Dalangunga, née Foxworth, starts off as a loving mother, but her love has a price, and unfortunately, the children born out of a love her parents did not approve of are about to pay it. Though their grandmother is harsh, cruel and determined to make all four children aware that their presence is merely being suffered, she also takes a considerable amount of joy. Not that you can actually tell, given how unemotional the woman acts, is punishing them for whatever it is their mother did. Time passes, as it would, slowly for the children as they spend what feels like an eternity in the attic. They are provided with a list of 14 rules that seem both ridiculous and extreme at the same time, stressing on sin and sinful behaviour. And what's worse is that they are left at the mercy of their grandmother as Corrine attempts to win back her father's affections and also, apparently, attends secretarial school in an effort to make herself more useful to her family. Of course, as the months pass, Catty begins to feel doubt about her mother's intentions. Little things start to look suspicious. Is her mother truly trying to get her father to forgive her? Is she ever going to let the children out of the attic to spend time in the fresh air? Are they ever going to be free again? For over a year, Kathy and Chris do everything they can to ensure that their younger siblings are kept busy, following the rules that their grandmother set out. They must never do anything that brings attention to their presence. But as anyone who has children will know, keeping two four-year-olds quiet isn't easy. 
especially when a few days turns into a week, a week turns into a month, and that turns into a year. While her children are fighting fear in the attic with only judgmental visits from their grandmother to keep them company, Corrine is doing her best to get her father's forgiveness, working hard to earn her way back into his will. She is also, at the same time, enjoying social events, reintroduced to the friends she left behind when she married her beloved Christopher. Of course, time is a great healer, and the more time Corrine has as a fancy-free heiress and all that entails, it seems the more she forgets the promises that she made to her four children. Her visits to the attic become less and less frequent, until it's almost as though she has forgotten them completely. While Corrine is rebuilding her life, Kathy and Chris are struggling with the pain of adolescence. They were 12 and 14 when they entered the attic, with barely an understanding of puberty and the wonder that can bring, and the agony. But as their life in the attic continues, they both start to change, and in close proximity, things that really shouldn't happen do. Though the children stay in the attic, trapped there with kind and conjoling words from their deceptive mother, Things don't start to truly go wrong until the donuts start to arrive. Sweet powdered sugar donuts, evil hidden in the sweet white coating. And then there's the re- revelation that beloved Corrine has indeed moved on, marrying the young and impressive Bart Winslow, her father's lawyer. The discovery that their mother has betrayed them, that she has she was only too happy to spend months forgetting their existence in exchange for a honeymoon across Europe with her new husband, is devastating. But it is also enough to give them the final push to get their freedom. Possibly. I knew that I was heading into a bit of a minefield, taking a look at this book for the first time in well over 20 years, because even when I read it in 1985, just six years after it was originally published, it was already hugely controversial. But more about that in a few minutes. Before I get into what I thought of this book, you know that I like to make sure the view I present is balanced, because I think that getting opinions from both ends of the spectrum is important. No two people will review a book or look at it in the same way, especially when the material I'm looking at is so full of plot lines that are on the more taboo side. So what did other reviewers think of Flowers in the Attic? Linnea gave the book a two-star review and associates it with a fascination for the grotesque. I have this unfortunate penchant for ugly things. I buy ugly jewellery, I go out with slightly unattractive men, and I read books like this. It's awful, and yet there is something about how awful it is that made me enjoy it. I have a relationship with V.C. Andrews that goes way back. In my junior high days, these awful books were all the rage, along with body glitter and peel-off nail polish. Reading this book again was like going back to a simpler time, a time when there were no bills, no laundry, and my greatest concern was if Dan would ask to borrow a pencil in math class. I had a ready supply just in case. It was a quick read, which is possibly its only merit. So if you're looking for something to pass the time, which is slightly trashier than warm wine coolers in a trailer park, read this book. 
It seems that this book appeals to two different audiences. The ones who read it as teenagers in the 80s, the ones who now read it for nostalgic reasons. And then there are the people who read it because of the tales told by those who read it in the 1980s. Were you either of these? I know that I was the former. Kristen gave the book five stars, having read all of them as a child, and this was her adult reread. I know, I know, this book is tawdry. It's tabloidy. It's the one book I secretly coveted and acquired in my tedious prepubescent soul-searching. I'd lay under the covers, flashlight in hand, knees up to make a pseudo-tent, and I'd search for the dirty parts. I knew there was something naughty between these pages, something to be whispered and giggled about later on with my girlfriends, something I didn't rightly understand. I went back and read the entire Dolanganger series as an adult, and yes, it is tacky, but it's also elegant, like a beautifully written yet laughable soap opera. It's pedantic, yet fluid, monotone and a little stale, but it works damn well. And oh, the melodrama. And above all else, these books are fascinating. The series is truly epic in scale, reaching back far before the children in flowers were even born. And it stretches further into their future when some of their lives have ended or been drastically altered. Andrews is relentless in her portrayal of parental indifference. The mother and grandmother characters treat their progeny with such disregard. And yes, they do lock them in the attic. For years, they never go outside. They're starved and slowly poisoned. They get sick and grow weak. Their bones don't grow right. It's interminable. And you begin to wonder, Jesus, why am I reading this terrible book? And then it dawned on me. Gist, the grist, the core of this saga is the lasting and far-reaching effects of incest, abuse and neglect, the worst of which occurs in this first book. And these things happen all the time. In our world, the real world, all around us, I think this book is important. I think it tells a universal story. And I was often moved by it and by the series as a whole. But it made me wonder. It made me wonder about the author, about her story, if she was raised in similar circumstances. And I think that's the point, because you never know. You can never, ever really know what someone else has been through, where their lives took them and why they are the way they are. So there are two very, very contrasting reviews. But what did I think? Did I like Flowers in the Attic on this reread? These books leave me in a bit of a quandary. On the one hand, I loved them. I mean, I seriously loved them as a girl on the verge of being a teenager. On the other hand, there is something decidedly disturbed about these books on the whole. When I first decided that this gothic novel was the perfect October fodder, dark, twisted covers, so many taboo topics that you could lose count... I figured that it was going to be one that made me step just a little outside the comfort zone I have set for myself since the last time I read the book. The horrors that the Delanganga children are put through in the attic are so many that it makes me wonder exactly what I saw in the books when I read them in my formative years. And here I admit I am going to get a bit spoilery, 
not only for Flowers in the Attic, but also the four other original books in the series, namely Petals on the Wind, If There Be Thorns, Seeds of Yesterday, and Garden of Shadows. Without going into certain elements of these books, it would be impossible to explain why I think these books appealed to the girl I was at 11, 12, 13. The books weren't received well by critics. In fact, they were referred to as deranged swill by one reviewer in the Washington Post. And reading them as an adult, I can see where the opinion was coming from, to a point. However, something about them spoke to me as a pubescent girl. Andrews pitched the book to publishers as based on real life events. And funnily enough, I still remember reading that on the introductory page and finding it fascinating. This was based on a true story. That meant by reading it, I would be learning something, right? The thought that somewhere, at some point in time, this had happened wasn't lost on me. I was at turns horrified and traumatized, but also fascinated. I know that I'm not alone in having negative feelings towards my family at points in my life. As a tween and a teen, my relationship with my mother was, at best, conflicted. So seeing this family being tormented by their mother, the worst of cruelties inflicted upon them, I identified, though in the loosest way, I wasn't stuck in an attic and abused. I don't think that I was ever envious of these four children locked in an attic, in fact, I think it made me feel better about the life I was living at that point. So in some weird and twisted way, the books gave me a feeling that my life wasn't really that bad, at least while I was reading them. Every teenager has those feelings, I am sure. The story of the Dalangangas becomes more and more twisted and convoluted as it goes on. After the attic, and despite missing out on several years of school, they are able to reach their aspirations but what they experienced understandably haunts them. No, actually, probably haunts is the wrong word. Kathy is able to move on with her life to a degree. She becomes a dancer, she marries, she has children, but Chris, her brother, is always there, her first love, in more ways than one. And for Chris, the same is true. He is always hovering, seemingly waiting for the opportunity to be there for her. And not in a nice, brotherly way. Okay, I've beaten around the bush enough. This entire series is one big old ball of incest. And for some reason, this is something which appealed to teenage girls. The funny thing is that when the books were originally marketed in the 70s and 80s and distributed, they were in the adult section of the library. YA, as it is now, just didn't exist. And these were not considered books for young girls, but they were smuggled into bedrooms around the globe. 40 million bedrooms, including mine. I have read a few psychology articles and reviews about the appeal of books like this one. And I have to be honest, I still don't get it. But there is no denying that these books had, and to a degree still have, a draw for young readers. But this is about me. Did I like the book? There was a part of me that couldn't wait to get to the end to see the book and the story over. I wanted to read the last line and move on to the next tale. Not about this twisted Virginia family who live in a big mansion in the middle of nowhere. 
But there were moments when I was cheering on the four children. There were many moments when I wanted to slap selfish Corinne around the face and echo Kathy's cries of, look at us, look at what you're doing. And then there were moments when I just wanted to close the book and say, nope, that's it, I am done. Ultimately, this book is not of its time or it wouldn't still be on bestseller lists and they wouldn't still be making films about it. Yes, I see you, Lifetime. All of those films, by the way, are on Paramount+. Plus. It's a book that will continue to sell. There is something about The Forbidden that will always appeal to audiences. And this book has it all. Imprisonment, filicide, child abuse, sex, scandal and incest, to name but a few of the themes to be found. Ultimately, the books aren't badly written. Are they flowery and do they view taboo topics through slightly rose-tinted lenses? Yes, to a point they do. But Virginia Andrews never claimed to be writing a Jane Austen novel. Will I read more in the Delanganga series? If I'm being honest, I did look at getting the rest of the books in this series, or at least the first five, because don't do ghostwriting, said that several times. But I was prevented from doing so by one thing, lack of uniformity. Yes, I know that sounds weird, but the cover I purchased of the first book is actually beautiful, incredibly gothic and demure in a strange way. I went to get the rest of the books and discovered that only the first three have been published looking like this. The rest have glossy photograph covers and being honest, I do not like them. So in a way, I was saved from purchasing the books by the publisher and that's probably a good thing. The books themselves continue to grow even darker with arson, matricide, cultish behaviour, no, I did not mispronounce, countless affairs and more incest. And then you get to the fifth book, the story of the Granite Granny, otherwise known as Garden of Shadows, and oh boy, the revelations in that one put a whole new spin on the rest of the books. I may well purchase the others on my Kindle, but for now I am happy to leave this visit to my tween reading obsession at one book. If you're looking for something like this or you loved this, loved, possibly not the right word, and want something else, then these are where you should look. I'm not actually sure that there are other books like this one, unless you count the other 10 books in the series, six and a half of which were written by a ghostwriter following Virginia Andrews' death from breast cancer in 1986. So if you did like this or want to read something else with the same themes, then I would definitely recommend you look to the other books by Andrews. I cannot comment on the skill of the ghostwriter as I stopped reading the books after Garden of Shadows, which was apparently 95% complete at the time of Andrews' death. And I never looked back. But you could always try the rest of the Delanganga series, starting with Petals on the Wind and ending with Garden of Shadows. Or there's her standalone, My Sweet Audrina, or the Castile series that starts with Heaven and Dark Angel. Virginia Andrews' name is a draw. Books with her name on them continue to be released, despite the fact that she died almost 40 years ago. And there are currently 101 books written by her and her ghostwriter. 
In fact, the IRS considered her name to be so valuable, they demanded it should be included in her gross estate. This week has been an interesting one. I had a day off work on Monday and spent the entire thing watching as my study was decorated. Old items were removed. Glitter was mixed into paint and then carefully daubed on the wall. It's amazing the difference changing things around can make to how you feel about a space. Time was that on a Friday I would shut the door to this room and not step foot in it again until Monday, at least not without feeling a bit of stress and frustration at the clutter and the way it looked. Now I am sitting here on a Sunday admiring the light that is reflecting off the walls and wondering what books I'm going to buy to fill up the space on my new bookcase. Now that my office is finished, it's on to the next project, though I'm not currently sure what it's going to be. To be fair, I really should finish this room. Pictures on the wall, organised shelves, better lighting before I start on anything else. But I have the bug now and my bedroom could really do with a bit of TLC. This week I have been very disciplined as far as book purchases are concerned. But I did manage to tip over into triple digits on my reading count. I have now read 101 books this year and the list is only going to grow. I'm really looking forward to seeing what's next because while I should probably plan, I really don't. (laughs) But then I'm a mood reader. Though I have been incredibly disciplined when it comes to my book purchases for the last few weeks, I have still been getting recommendations and my TBR and wish list continue to grow. I still want to hear from you if you have any suggestions. So if there is a fiction novel you think I would love, recommend away. Send me an email at notbeforecoffeepodcast at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter or Instagram. And I will be sure to take a look, I promise. It may take me time, but I will take a look. Oh boy, was I wrong about last week being quiet when it comes to book releases. There were so many, I have just spent an age sorting through absolutely everything that came out on the 13th of October. Anyway, this week is definitely quieter than what is now known as Super Thursday. I need to fire my researcher. Me. I I mean, I need to fire me. Here are some of the books that are coming out in the week starting the 17th of October. If you're a huge fan of Colleen Hoover and you'd just die for Atlas and Lily, then you won't want to miss It Started With Us, the sequel to her bestseller, It Ends With Us. Kind of appropriate title, I guess. If courtrooms dramas are your game, then you'll want to put The Boys from Biloxi by John Grisham in your basket didn't realize he was still writing. Personally, short stories are not something I will ever rush out to get. In fact, I think there was a poll about it on Twitter this week because I like long form storytelling. But if I were all about collections of short tales, then Liberation Day by George Saunders would be on my list. John Le Carre wrote spy stories like no one else. I have reviewed one and I will post a link to it in the info box. But The Secret Heart is a memoir by Salika Dawson and is about the long-term love affair that the pair had. 
prepare for some intimate secrets to be shared. I was never a big Dickens fan, but this latest novel by Barbara Kingsolver might change my mind. As with Demon Copperhead, she's giving us an unusual retelling of David Copperfield. Clever title. I'm going to put my hand up here and say I have never read the Divergent series, but Veronica Roth is here with a new book all about a dystopian future where everyone is under surveillance. Wait future isn't that now anyway poster girl is another book out this week as always i haven't talked about all the books that are being released over the next seven days but if you want to find out more about new releases over the next few months make sure you sign up for my newsletter by clicking the button on my website or heading to my twitter page I know that I have been a bit lax with those of late, but I am in the process of getting things sorted out so they will be released every weekend. Also, have you checked out the new section on my website yet? Yeah, I'm going to keep on pressing. Go to my website, beingbookish.co.uk. Head over and take a look at my rapid reviews, a spoiler-free book review you can read in less than three minutes. So how are things in the bookish household this week? Like last week, things have actually been going quite well. I've had a few moments where I just want to do nothing more than go to bed. And I have found that my brain wanders a lot more in the evenings. But I have been doing something positive about that. When I finish work in the evenings, it used to be a case of I'd finish work, I'd open my personal laptop and I would begin scrolling through social media constantly. Over the last couple of weeks, I have been doing something that I think is incredibly positive for me. And that is I've been finishing work. I have not been switching on my laptop. I've been picking up a book. To be fair, that's no different than normal anyway. And I've had strangely the big bang theory playing in the background just to have some noise accompaniment for the day but I'm not staring at a screen the entire 17 hours that I'm awake and I found that that is actually having a positive effect on a lot of things primarily my mood but also my sleep pattern I'm going to bed at night My brain isn't overtaxed because I've been reading something that makes me frustrated on social media or the newspaper or anything else. And I'm going to bed to sleep. Granted, last night that was not the case, but I started watching something on ITV Hub. I think it was McDonald and Dodds or something. And I just needed desperately to find out who the killer was at the end. I have a thing for procedurals (laughs) and I'm finding there are so many of them at the moment. I'm not a fan of the really gritty ones. I like the ones with a bit of humor in them. So I love things like Death in Paradise and Murder, She Wrote, R.I.P. Angela Lansbury and Columbo. And I've just found this new one and obviously Professor T, which is another great one. I think that sometimes 
we put too much pressure on ourselves to fill our evenings with lots of activities when in actual fact it's quite good for us to sit down and rest our brains for a while so that's exactly what I've been doing I've been finishing work sometimes a little bit later than normal because I'm trying to fill up time I've got a a hospital appointment in a couple of weeks that I need the time off for and then I will go and sit with a book Granted, this week's book wasn't exactly the most relaxing and enjoyable one to read, but I have got an amazing one coming up that I did post about on Instagram yesterday, meaning Saturday, and just relaxing. And sometimes that's all you need. I know it doesn't work for everybody, but I am trying very hard at the moment to find things that distract me. Having curtains in my lounge is a very strange but useful tool because I can shut out the darkness and have the light on and it's bright and it's warm and it's making me feel a little bit better about myself. And reading a book and having the television on in the background just as accompaniment because I am on my own. And then I spend the evening snuggled up on the sofa with a book with my cat who is decidedly clingy at this time of year and the world seems to be relatively put to rights which is really nice for me. I know that it won't work for everybody but honestly if you find one thing that works to make your evening less stressful after a long week or even a long day go for it whether that's yoga, meditation, a long soak in the bath, a hot shower, even a glass of wine. I'm not going to encourage <laughs> overabundance of drinking because that's never a good thing either. It doesn't solve anything. I'm not going to judge, but it doesn't solve anything, at least from my personal experience. I have found something that at this moment in time is working for me. And as I said last week, When it comes to mental health, if you are feeling isolated, alone, stressed, talk to someone. Send somebody a message on Twitter that you know, a DM, not not a message via a thread, but send a message to a friend. Phone them up. Send a voice message on WhatsApp. Arrange a chat with them. Sometimes the little things help far more than we realize. And for me, that little change has been not sitting in front of a computer for the entire day and then the entire evening. Feels a bit weird, I have to admit. But at the same time, it is doing me the world of good to be screen free. Well, that's it for this week. Thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, why not share it with your friends and family and please post a star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or any other podcatcher where you listen. It really does help. You can follow me on Twitter at being underscore bookish and on Instagram at beingbookishpod or you can check out my website beingbookish.co.uk. Yes, that's a lot of bookish. 
well, I've got a lot to get ready for next week and I still need to decide on the next book for Booktober. So until next time, this is me saying farewell. 